Welcome to What the Fish, a podcast where the fish guys at the Field Museum in Chicago talk about marine life, new and crazy species, natural history news, and fish. So who are the fish guys? We have Dr. Leo Smith, head of fishes, also known as the juggernaut, as he is a force to be reckoned with. Hello. Dr. Mac Davis, postdoc, also known as Gambit, because he's sneaky from the Cajun South. Hello. And we have a special guest today, Sarah Gibson, a visiting paleoichthyologist, or also known as the Phoenix for her mad crazy skills. Hello. And I am Beth Sanzenbacher, your host and future mother of Wolverine. So this week, we are talking about how museums actually get the collections. So how do we get these fish, how do we get these fossils, and how do we get them to study them and put them on display? So yeah, so the Field Museum goes on, probably scores, you know, 50 to 100 collections every year. So whether those are expeditions to collect fishes or maybe even like picking up meteorites or we have uh, the ornithologists will actually pick up dead birds every year during the migrations that hit buildings in Chicago. There's a literally thousands of different ways that we go out and collect things. And so today we're going to talk about the variety of different ways that we collect fishes. All right, so how do you, how do you guys get your, get your live fish? Let's start with the living stuff. That depends on the way, the, the type of fish that we're actually going after, whether they're freshwater or marine. Um, so a common way that we collect freshwater fishes um, is with gigantic nets that we just pull through. They're called seine nets, so that's probably one of the most common ways. Contrary to what some people might think, not most, most ichthyologists who work on freshwater fishes don't actually collect fish like with a hook and a line. So they're not actually out there fishing. That seems like it would take an, a long time if you're looking for a specific species. Sadly, I wouldn't know because I've actually never hooked in line freshwater fish <laughs> in North America. I, mean, I, I assume it takes a while. Wouldn't like I wouldn't like collecting with a hook in line. Isn't that can that damage the fish? Like you don't want to really damage your fish too much, would you? Like would it scare yeah. them? I don't know. I've it never I've never fished either. So. I I've caught some one time. I've caught a few every now and then on a hook in a line. Like if I was going after a sunfish, where like the hook went through the eye or something, but it wasn't. It didn't damage the specimen too bad. <laughs> I mean, like. Fish are bilaterally symmetric, so the left and right side are different, so as long as you don't go all the way through, it's usually okay. Um, but historically, people collected fish with dynamite, and, you know, a lot of times within the ocean, as you can imagine, we go spearfishing, and we still do that, because there's just certain ways, certain fish, if we wanted to catch, like, a full-size salmon or trout, a real, even, you know, right now, we, we the only chance we'd really have would be to go out and fly fish farm. I don't think you can, there's not too many places that it's either illegal or reasonable to pull a fish a same through and try and get a trout or something. And aren't there specific poisons or toxins that you can go fish with that like only target certain groups of fish or all fish or so there's poisons that'll that will work in on any fit or anything that respires with gills. So we have rotenone and other ichthyotoxins that prevent the exchange of gas or oxygen across the gills. And so that'll also wipe out shrimp and crust crabs and probably crayfish and things like that. Um, they're pretty much illegal in the United States, so we wouldn't use those for those. But in a lot of countries, it's legal. Um, and the, despite the fact that it's technically illegal, there's no, there's no shortage of times that the Department of Natural Resources or will actually dump those in various places in the United States to try and take out invasive species of things. So they are used. It's just individually, it would be an incredible sort of paper trail to create. Right. So it'll probably get that to work and not worth it. Again, those things are not toxic to 
like plants or other organisms. It's mainly just the things they're breathing through gills. Right. So if you were to have a, you would be on a coral reef and you have a clownfish sitting on the sea anemone, you could dump the rotenone right on the clownfish anemone and actually, you know, the anemone would be fine and you would get the clownfish yeah. rather than spearing the clownfish hmm. so and the anemone. Getting back to the big nets, like, so is this from like a boat? Is this from a pier? Like, what do you do with, like, how big is the net when you say big net? And then, like, how do you get it into the water? And do you trawl it, or like, do you just like cast it out and let it fall? There like, are different ones. So, like, if you're collecting freshwater fishes, you may use a cast net where you you cast it out and you let it, you know, and you let it fall. And the size may vary depending on the kind of fish you're after. And that's like a basically a Spider-Man circle with like weights around the edge. You have to throw sort of a very particular way so that it opens up in midair and then comes crashing down. And then it's got like a drawstring that you pull. Yeah, oh. it's so you do get to feel like you're Spider-Man. Then. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of technique that goes into using a cast net properly. Unfortunately, I don't know if, if Leo or I have that technique. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't I know. Do you? I, I can I, use a cast net. Yeah, I can. It's six feet or smaller. Yeah, I can do it too. It's just, a, you know, it's not always successful. I'm like, pretty good at that. There's definitely an art to it. There's people that can throw like a nine, ten foot cast net, and I think, you know, you have to put part of it over your shoulder, and it's like a whole, it's like hanging in your mouth. Or something. And like, yeah, yeah it's an unbelievable the amount of stuff people. But they get good at it. I mean, some people, that's how they live. And um, But then there's also sains. I've never pulled a sane longer than probably 15 to 20 feet. I've never, I think there are larger ones. Mm-hmm. So those are usually called beach sains because the there's there's open ocean sains called purse sains and other things. But those work on the principle that so one person sits still, the other person walks in a circle around that person, and then you both pull the thing to shore. If you're in a river, then you're going to just do it how the river bends. and things. Right. But you have to basically pull it up on a... Try to get on a sandbar or yeah. something. You right, something so you have to you walk out there. Like, it's not like... You're oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. You have to walk and pull it, and it's usually on poles that, you know, a pole on each side and the net's in between. Right. And you're dragging it, and you're trying to keep the bottom of the net down so fish don't escape under the bottom. Gotcha. And the only way those really work well is if you have sort of a... The water comes up to, you know, slowly gets shallower and shallower as you're pulling it, like on a beach. So depending on the kinds of fish we're going after, we have to adjust our methods... Because some things you can get pretty easily with a sane net just by pulling, and some things you can't. And use those same sains if you go out, if you're trying to get marine fish or oceanic fish. For a lot of things, we'll put out gill nets. So we can put out a net that just sits out there and it has a weird way of capturing fish so they kind of get hung up on it, kind of like a barbed wire effect. And so you can put that out there and then bring it in a couple hours later or less, depending on what your goal is. And these are a lot of times what they'll use to try and keep sharks off of, you know, in South Africa or something. They'll use these to try and keep sharks off of beaches. I'm not sure how effective they are for that, but... Yeah. Yeah, I've used those, like, in the Kansas River. Like, gars and other things. Other large fish. Yeah, they're really... They're better for bigger fish. And right. especially predatory fish that aren't necessarily gonna... You're never gonna catch on a same beach same because they're too fast or something. Right. Have you ever had, like, a scary encounter catching a big fish? Sometimes, I mean, you know, fish can be quite aggressive and mm-hmm. threatening. And The meanest encounter I've ever had is with a porcupine puffer. It was chasing me around. Well, I tried to spear it first. So I had spear <laughs> it, and I spear it, shot it, not without really thinking, because their whole body is covered with, like, a armor that kind of, if you have a skeleton, one kind of looks like jacks intertwined, like the, the kids' game jacks. And they're all intermingled, and so I shot it in the forehead. And the spear gun just bounced right off of it, but it got mad. And they're not graceful underwater, but they're certainly better than me. You know, they're not so great underwater. And it started chasing me, and so I was shoving the spear gun in its mouth, crying as it was chasing after me, and it's just biting through it, just biting, biting, because they have a beak, like a two, just a two-tooth beak, and chasing after me. 
basically after me, and finally, as I'm prying, I like pull back so the spear guns are sort of like a slingshot, except you have to like latch them, and it's actually it takes a, little, a remarkable amount of energy to, and strength to pull it back and get it all, you know, locked up. And so I finally got the thing locked up, and then realized that the fish is all muscle on near its tail because that's how it moves; it beats its tail rather than the, you know, and that's where the armor is free so that it can actually swim this way. And so I shot it finally in the back of the tail, and then it took my spear and my spear gun and me pulling me behind it and went into a rock and then inflated because that's what they inflate. And so it locked itself in there. So it's got my spear as it penetrated through the armor, sitting in the fish. The fish is not doing well, but it's alive and it's keeping inflated, stuck in the rock. And so I spent the next 45 minutes just trying to pull it free of the rock. So it was trapped in the thing, and it finally, <laughs> and then, you know. You know, at that point, we finally got it off, and the only way I could get the fish off the hook because the spear opens up, so it's barbed, mm-hmm. and it was inside it. And I finally was just trying to shake the fish off the spear at the end of the thing, and then the barb actually stayed in the fish, and so the fish permanently has the barb, and then we, we basically lost our our spear gun for that trip. That was the last time it could be used because we destroyed, I had destroyed it so badly trying to beat this one stupid porcupine puffer. How big was it? <laughs> um, it was about the size. It was bigger than a volleyball, so it was probably... Well, actually, so, that's what it looked like underwater. Now right. that I'm thinking about it, nice <laughs> <laughs> I it on land. Uh, yeah. it's it's about the size of, I take it back. It's somewhere between feet a wide. It's probably about the somewhere between a football and a volleyball. Everything looks bigger through your uh, scuba. This is, this and when is, it's chasing you. And when it's chasing you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but how, how, do, how did you spear it in the head? How did it not? I don't understand. What is the porcupine's fish head made out of? It's just, it's just solid bone and really oh, okay. tough bone. And I just I wasn't thinking. I was like... You sort of, when you're spearing, at some level you're just doing your best, but at some level you're, you know, because you, the fish moves, so you can't really aim that much. Um, but I was just like, you know, it was coming, it was sort of looking right at me, so I just went for it without really thinking through. <laughs> I didn't know they would come after you. It seems like it would run away. I, that's what they normally do. But this well, I don't one know about my buffers, but that's what most fish run away. Well, yeah. But this one's mad. like, no. <laughs> Vengeance. No, he didn't like it. No. How about you? Anything scary? Um... Nothing particularly scary. I mean, I've been bitten by gars that have, like, latched onto me. Or, like, onto, like, a, one time I had a life vest, like, swimming across the river or something on. And, like, one just, like, grabbed onto my life vest, which I thought was kind of kind of strange. But nothing too bad. So, yeah, while I was collecting in Panama with some colleagues, Wilfredo Mayamoros and Caleb McMahon, we had to go collect in this, like, giant mangrove swamp area. And then we were trying to get to it. And so we had a local came out with us to help us. Uh, so he was helping us with the nets and carry them. But when we got to the mangrove swamp, the water had reduced by so much that, you know, it was just this big muddy mess. And as we started to cross it to get to this, like, puddle of water that was out in the middle of this, like, giant lake slash river area, you know, every time we would step, like, we would sink up to, like, our waists in the mud. So it took us, like, 40 minutes just to get out to this little <laughs> tiny, like, stream of water. And then the whole time, like... After we started to think about it, we were worried that the tide or like it might the water level would come back up. So we started to worry about that because it took us so long to even get out there. And by the time we got out there, Caleb was so exhausted from walking across the mud that he was basically just crawling on his hands and knees, just like covered in mud, while Will and I were like carrying these nets. So that was kind of you know, kind of made fun of him a little bit for that. And by the time we got out there, we started collecting, and he was just kind of like dying practically <laughs> but then when we got there we got like the largest guppies you would ever see it's actually the species pc leopsis elongata so they're basically related to guppies they're like the kinds of things you get in an aquarium um 
But they were just gigantic. They must have been like close to a foot. Oh my Some god! Of the females. The males were a guppy? smaller. Yeah, I mean they were huge. So we were like pretty excited, but we must have wiped out like the entire population. <laughs> <laughs> there were these like enormous <laughs> Well, the, truth, the reason we went out there is because Caleb was convinced that we would get mullets. So there's these fish called mullets, which aren't as cool sounding by their name. They don't have like Not the long flowing, <laughs> like especially yeah, no, nothing like that. But but we didn't end up getting any. We just got these giant guppies. But that was, that was pretty fun. The only problem with it, it was the first site we were collecting on this particular trip in Panama. And after we had, because of the mud, when we walked out and we were stepping on top of the mangrove parts, all of our feet were just totally shredded. By the time we got back, they were just all cut up. So we spent the whole rest of the trip like bloody feet. And it was no good. I got a bot fly on my leg. No fun. Yeah. <laughs> How about catching fossils? Do you, I was going to say. That injuries? Seems, injuries? Oh, yeah. I've had lots of injuries. but It seems like catching fossils would be much easier because they don't move. They've got power tools. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't have any crazy stories except, like, just trying to get to sites where, like, I've collected in most of my – almost all my collecting has been in Utah, southern Utah, and there's this one formation that's very uh, – it's slopey and it's ashy. It's not like cliffs. It's, like, lots of slopes and it's soft sediment – and we were climbing down to this site, and I'm. We were gonna quarry there, so we had all of this like gear with us. We got like saws and pickaxes and stuff, and I'm holding on all this stuff and like down the slope, and I'm like dragging this bin behind me that's full of hammers. Like I'm just dragging it down while I'm hiking down, and my other people I was with were, you know, on both sides of me. And then just you just had to hit that like one rock that's loose in the sediment, and like I slipped, and I. I slid down that slope with this like barrel of like this box filled with these hammers and everything like behind me That's awesome. sliding down behind <laughs> me and I'm just like scooting on my butt down the slope and man I was I shredded my pants and my legs were cut up and it was, I mean, that's the kind of peril that I go through collecting fossils. <laughs> so, I feel like there's a dumb, like a dumb as a bag of hammers. <laughs> chasing you down a hill. Thankfully, like, yeah, thankfully it didn't hit me. I managed to, like, catch it enough that it didn't right. slam into my head and, like, knock me unconscious or anything. So, like, that was the most interesting moment collecting so how do you how do you actually dig up your fossils is it easy is it like hammers do you have to bring like you know big machinery like like chainsaws or i don't know it, de- it depends on what so yeah collecting fish in fossil form is much different like it depends it depends on what the the rock is the rock type um usually some you know some formations it's very soft sediment like if you think of a famous locality that most people are familiar with this, the Green River Formation in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. That's like uh, shales, platy. Um, and first of all, you you know, to see the fish, you kind of have to see impressions on it. Like you don't usually see the bone yet. It's usually covered with rock. But um, sometimes they saw those out with rock saws into like squares. And then they take those plates back with them to the museum or the, the lab to get prepped. Um, sometimes, so yeah, rock saws are involved. Sometimes you can just be lucky enough to have like hammer and chisel and chisel them out. There are also like nodules, um, some formations or some in Canada and stuff, one in Brazil, uh, you get these nodules that like when the fish fossilized, it kind of formed this like, I don't know how it, how to explain it best, but it, like the mud kind of surrounds it and like concentrates around it. So it's like a concretion. Uh, so it, you find these things, you can actually, sometimes you can crack them open with a hammer. Like a geode? Yeah. 
Yeah, you can crack yeah. these. You can crack these things fun. open like geodes, and you open them, and you've got like little like herrings and things so, like, like geodes that. Where so. It just shatters, and you're like, dang it! Oh yeah, that happens too. Like if you you have to like find the sweet spot of how it's going to crack because sometimes like fish will, um, if they when they fossilize, they get compressed, and so they become flat, and that plane that the the fossil creates uh, is you know makes kind of a weakness in the rock layer, so things will. It'll, you'll kind of have a plane of weakness right there. If you could find it when you're splitting like layers of rock or you're splitting nodules, you can get both halves beautifully preserved. And if you don't find it, you get weird cross sections of fish and you get, you know, disasters. It's incomprehensible <laughs> to me that like, I don't even know how you find a fossil, that, or find a fish of any fossil. It's like the only time I ever saw them. Like, how do you go out into, you know, how can I go out into the desert and know where to find them? Yeah. Like, every time I've ever done maps. anything like that, it's just. I have to go to something like Calvert Cliffs where you're just like, oh, there's one falling out of the, as it erodes away in Maryland <laughs> or like go, sort of one other place was in New Jersey where we get shark teeth, like uh-huh. just like mining through the river, like looking for gold, except for the shark teeth and rainy jaws right. everywhere. You can do that in Florida too. Florida and some other parts you can, um, I'm not sure the deposit, but you can actually pull up the megalodon shark teeth. So those, <gasps> those big. Megalodon like, is my favorite. You can actually go collect those like, you know, six inch shark teeth. I think the biggest one I ever got was maybe like posted stamp, you know, one and a half inches. The great job pieces were whatever, or, plates or whatever they're called, um, were bigger. But yeah, there's there's a awesome. formation near uh, Bakersfield, California, that is just like littered with shark teeth. Like that's all that's there. And it's almost like the gravel itself is just shark teeth. And that's, that's all it is. And it's called like, Shark Tooth Hill. So this thing you know. in New Jersey, I don't know, you know, we must have. We were there for like an hour, and I must have, my wife and I together, having never done anything like that, must have collected, you know, 50 to 100 shark teeth. That's know, cool. First half, you don't know what you're doing. Second half, it's like, you know, easy. You're just like, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> now you know what to look for. Well, then that's half of it, is knowing what to look for, because um, you, you train your eye. Mm-hmm. It gets much better to know what to look for. But time and practice. If someone never, years of schooling. Yeah, I mean, like if someone never went, like let's say you guys were, you were in a helicopter and were dropped in the middle of like Brazil, would it be obvious that just walk around where to look for fossils, or is that like, like are there certain things that you know are better? Like, well, it's it's like if you could think about it like this, you know, you know, like you know, like what certain types of water bodies of water will have types of fish. And, you know, like, there'll be deposits of water that don't have fish if they're really super salty, like the Great Salt Lake or something like that. But, and it's the same thing with with paleontologists or paleoichthyologists that, like, you know, there are deposits that we know are devoid because they're just not the right deposit. Like, we don't look at sand dune deposits. We're not going to find fish there. But, you know, you, you have to know, have kind of a geologic background to know what formations are aquatic deposits, can so, you just eyeball that, or is it like yeah, you, you can. have to look at a mappy kind of uh, sediment-y thing? You know, you can go, like, if I'm, like, dropped off at, you know, somewhere, like, if I found an outcrop of rock, like, I mean, I'd go up to it and see what the consistency of the rock is, and then I'd be like, well, this, you know, could have this or that. Like, if I find, like, a fine, you know, shaley sandstone, I'd be like, well, it could be, like, a lakeshore deposit. And then you look for telltale things, like you look for invertebrates you look for traces like trace fossils like tracks or ripple marks or so even from there then you can start digging around like something some deposits will be like you you just think they're gonna be ideal for this you know for fish or for you know those type of things and you just go through it and you're surveying and you're scouting around and you just find nothing absolutely nothing it's probably a bit harder than collecting modern fish but the nice thing is that they don't move around they're not they're not 
moving. They're not chasing you. <laughs> They're not chasing me like a porcupine puffer. So what about deep sea stuff? So how do you collect in the deep sea? With a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With James Cameron. First off, you need lots of money. $100 bills on it. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a few ways. Probably the most common is to trawl off of a boat. Um, and there's about 50 million well, different kinds of trawls. Wasn't yeah. there just a huge... Uh, happened in britain did, did somebody because the bbc kept posting like findings from their like they did a huge ocean worldwide cruise it was a couple years ago and they would post like things that they would find um i'm not sure if well, like, some of those are a, just they send down rovs and they're just taking videos and pictures like they're not collecting large numbers of specimens or fish anyway they may be collecting other things but right. they're mainly just photographing and videoing and, and catching a few things but to get like a mass quantity of fish, you usually have to do it through a net. And sometimes it's hard to even get permission to do like a bottom trawl mm. to get like things on the bottom. Just because it tears up the environment. Yeah. But once you're realistically below scuba or maybe rebreather depth, which is the below for scuba, it's probably, well, between scuba and rebreather, you're probably not going to go down more than 300 feet, mm. maybe 400. Uh, once you're down there, your only choices are basically some crazy expensive submarine with a hook um, or a trawl net. I, it's it's true that I've been I've gone hook and line fishing on the in the ocean deeper than that. So there are mounts in various places of the ocean that are sort of mountain. I mean, sort of like rain, mountain ranges underground, and you can actually try and fish for things that are on top of those. And so you'll actually put like a ten pound. Um, I've never done more than eight pound, but an eight pound weight on the end of a fishing line mm -hmm. and then if that fishing line will have like eight to ten hooks that you'll mix with a with live squid or not live squid but fre fresh or frozen squid and some bioluminescent uh lures mm -hmm. and you drop it down and you'll put it down and because no one fishes out there because you got to trek out in the middle of nowhere do that but it's just like covered with bottom dwelling fish that live on these rocky outcroppings and so you drop the net down you you basically hold your finger on the line as it's going down all the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet. And also you sort of feel it hit. That's why I put the weight on partially because it's going so deep. But, and then you reel it in and the, the thing has got, you know, every single time the eight hooks, you'll have nine or 10 fish because the little one, the smallest ones will have big fish on top of it. So you pull it up and it's like, first time I ever did that, I actually caught a blue shark. The only time I've ever caught a shark hook and line was, wow. was putting it down because I totally had no idea when it would hit the bottom of the blue. It didn't hit the bottom at all because I was so bad at it. <laughs> it was actually the first time I ever used a, a fishing pole. And, uh, but randomly I got a blue shark and then you pull it up and everyone like freaks out on the boat even though it was like probably the world's record smallest blue shark is about a foot long. Right. Otherwise it's big nets so you can picture just whether it's the Finding Nemo big net of things or what you picture someone collecting tuna or something like um, you can't put like long lines out, I suppose. Yeah. You could do something or, you know, sort of what you think of with, uh, what was that movie with, uh, George Clooney and the boat? The perfect sort of storm. Perfect storm. Mm -hmm. So like the kind of big, it. long, you know, you basically, you put out baited hooks and just, and then pull in, you know, I don't know how long those are, but miles long, net, like, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, then if you're trying to get a fish that's not on the bottom, but it's deep, you use other kinds of nets, and so there's a million kinds of things called midwater trawls. So these can be, there's ones called bongos, they look like there are two of them right next to each other. They look like you could, you know, sort of bang them like drums. And they were designed because mm -hmm. people, the reason we created them in the first place, because some people wondered if it was patchy when you would have fish. And so if you had two things that were right next to each other, and they got have different amounts of fish in each of the two nets, oh, right. you could go like, oh, is it patchy or the same or uniform? But then they just turned out to be such, like, you could basically get two nets. 
you know, <laughs> like and the so there's, certain, there's a certain amount of you get like more surface area and there's a certain amount of damage of having a wider net and all the water pressure that funnels through the net because the net has to the net isn't like completely water doesn't just pour right through the net it's a little rough and it, it's got some uh like drag, drag. that it creates mm-hmm. and so by splitting among the two we've kind of found that we had better luck and in this modern era we now a lot of people will put one form one into formaldehyde so that for regular museum collections and the other bongo they'll put into uh alcohol so that people could do dna work on it because alcohol allows you to still get the dna out of the formalin which is a better long-term preservative is worse for that and so there's we just it left us keep doing this even though it was originally conceived for a completely unrelated sort of fish collection collecting thing we now do this all the time for these kinds of things um and then there's isaac's kids midwater trawl which are basically it's all different ways of just trying to get big fish you basically minimize drag and to try and force big fish that are swimming around there to get caught too as well instead of just little ones that can't be to get away from the net and then finally you have tucker trawls and mock nesses which allow you to not open them until a certain depth because when you put a net down mm. you could get something that's at one feet of water two feet of water three feet of water 100 feet of water 500 feet of water if you don't have a way of opening them when you're at depth or what the mock nest actually uses like six or seven different openings so that you can actually get stratified i what's it 1000 2000 3000 and it's really cool because they actually the way you actually turn these on originally um was you would send out a weight down the down the like the rope or it's actually a cable but you and it would slide down and once it hit it would open up the net you know it's like it wasn't now they could actually run wires and all sorts of stuff but they were like the amount of ingenuity that was required with the original nets was totally awesome i'm always uh, fascinated by that about how much um scientists invent things and, and mm-hmm. you know you when you think of scientists inventing you think of like engineers and things like that but there's a lot of invention that goes along with biologists and geologists and other natural scientists to get what they need to get yeah because a lot of times things aren't made or just sort of you know i'm sure that i don't know they call them rock sauce but i swear that they're just like regular old they're like i don't know i don't know what they're called in like the the commercial like a, terms like right <laughs> like a rotary saw or something. Yeah, it is like a it's like a handheld rotary saw. So yeah. like we kind of steal things from other things, but I'm, you're also would be surprised, maybe not surprised, but a lot of times the net technology, out of the lack of a better word, is actually just from like fishermen. Yeah, really, you know, I mean, like because they have to figure out ways to, to patch holes and things like that. It's not you have to make a net that works, and that if it has a problem, it'll still work. And you know how to make different fabrics in, in this day and age that will. You know, the biggest problem you have now is that when you put anything on the bottom of the ocean, it just picks up so much trash that's everywhere mm-hmm. that that really can mess with nets. That it was not a problem 50 years ago. And I don't know if it's just the density of stuff or we've dumped more stuff or plastic lasts longer and now we make things. But it's... We love trash in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's just, it's horrendous. I mean, you can't... I've never actually put a bottom trawl down in less than once or 300 feet or lower where you didn't come up with like a couple loose fishing nets or fishing poles or fishing line and Kentucky Fried Chicken sporks and wine bottles and batteries and bullets <laughs> 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 torpedoes, you know, you can pretty much, and so that's kind of, it's kind of, there's some danger in that perspective as well. Because you can, when you're digging through, when you pull up the net, it just looks like a sock full, of, like pantyhose full of mud. And you're digging through it, all of a sudden your hand is just completely impaled on a 100-year-old fishing hook or 70-year-old yeah. fishing hook or a bullet. Or Hypodermic needle. needles. <laughs> I've never pulled up any medical waste. That's good. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad we are disposing of that properly. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. So no matter what you're doing for collections, you're 
we have certain skill sets and we go into a place like one in 2003, I went into Madagascar with a couple of theologists and as much as we tried to catch all the different fishes in Madagascar, going to the fish markets were actually, we could supplement a lot of what we were doing because the local fishermen are experts at the local fish in a way that we, you know, don't, aren't, you know, and so we could get a lot of remarkable number of fishes. There are some ichthyologists um, that have gone and actually collect, almost exclusively collect that way. And you'll get, you know, it works better in the ocean and it works better in countries that are really rely on fishes. So like at Taiwan or... Yeah, all throughout Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. More, you know, Madagascar relies on fish pretty well, but they have no technology to like allow them to go down and get deeper fish or anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas Taiwan has all of that and a really strong fishing economy, economy basically. Well, and they also don't have any laws on bottom trawling. So they are out there bottom trawling like crazy. So in those fish markets, you'll find all kinds of deep sea fishes. And they're volcanoes, so it's not, they have no shelf in the same way that we do. So they're getting the deeper, faster. I mean, all these things, mm-hmm. you know, someplace like Madagascar is continental of origin rather than a volcanic volcano. And all those things play into like what you're going to find, how fast the things happen. It's, you know, it, it all matters. And it's the same, I guess it's sort of the same as knowing what rocks you're going to find. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to find in the thing is with different depths and do all those things. And mm-hmm. so we go out and we catch fish or kill rocks. <laughs> kill <laughs> Fossil rock. I don't have to kill my organisms. <laughs> I sleep well at night. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you can glue yours back together, too. In some instances, yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of patience. It takes a lot of additional preparation for fossils because, you know, you, you, you catch a live fish and you've got the live fish there. And then you just have to either, like, I don't know what you guys take, you tissue and then you put it in ethanol or whatever you do with them. But like when you catch a fish fossil, I guess you have, it's in rock. And so then you have to remove the rock off the top so you can even see the fish. So you haven't even gotten to your fish yet. And then once you've gotten to it, then you figure out what, you know, look at the morphology of it and whatever and study it. So do you do any of the fossil preparation yourself or um, mm-hmm. is that always technicians? Uh, places like uh, bigger institutions like the Field Museum and other places have uh staff preparators so paleontologists you know if they have fossils they give them to the preparators who can do it that's their job they can do it you know they, they know all the techniques and they're efficient um i i have prepped a lot of my own material prepared a lot of my own material you know i also like to do it too i like to do fossil preparation so, so. so how, do, how do you prep well most fish are usually you know smaller you have the whole specimen you know on your desk like if you look at say a dinosaur fossil you know you're going to have like huge bones and you can't they're they're not manageable but fish you've got the whole animal right there in front of you usually it's done under a microscope depending on the size but most you know fish you fit under a microscope to see up close at the bone um you use things like uh drills type tools pneumatic tools like that tools? yeah we i actually have Sounds one of the like tools i have in my set here i guess is a dental drill straight from the dentist and i heard it going yesterday in the lab and i was like does it make you cringe it did when ah. when the preparer turned it on i was like <laughs> it's inherently bad noise but like yeah there's like these these drills that you know are attached on a hose to a high pressure air system and so like you know it's a pneumatic tool that causes the needle to vibrate quickly and you use that to you don't usually press on the fossil you just kind of use that to drill off the matrix so the the rock that's around it we call it matrix and sometimes you get down to it and you can use like sharpened needles carbide needles or metal needles steel needles whatever and use that to slowly pick off the grains of rock uh, to expose the bones completely and then if you're lucky some rock can be dissolved with acid 
and you can actually take advantage of that to, uh, you know, what's called acid preparation. You dis- you submerge the fossil or the the rock with the fossil in an acid bath, and then that will dissolve the rock. And if the bone is of a different mineralization than the surrounding matrix, uh, it will leave the bone exposed. But then um, does it fall apart? No. Or do you? Not I mean, ne- Why does the fish want to stay together? Well, because it's it's <laughs> if it's if it's of a mineral that's not affected by the acid, like and you're not using like strong super strong acids, you're using like like a 10% acetic acid or like a bit stronger vinegar. than that. Yeah, vinegar. I, I mean, I've used vinegar to if if not to dissolve the matrix, the rock matrix to soften it because sometimes the rock can be really hard and if and if the rock is super hard, uh and the bone around inside it is much softer than the rock, you can destroy your fossil by playing, applying too much pressure or whatever. So you want to like get the matrix soft so you can use even water to soften it or vinegar or, um, but back to the acid preparation, it, if the mineral isn't affected by it, it leaves it in place. So there are some, some formations you can do a lot of acid prep. Whereas the one, uh, that I work predominantly in, in Utah, um, the acid, most acids that preparators use would also eat the bone away. So I don't use acid prep, which is a pain. It, it means that it takes much longer to prepare my own specimens because <laughs> I have to do it all mechanically. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And the matrix doesn't hold the fossil together, right? The, it, the fossil just sits in the matrix. Um, so for, yeah. So for fish fossils, it, well, it, it can hold, it is holding it together in some sense. Like I can't, in most instances, you can't completely remove a, an entire fish specimen from the rock. You know, it usually stays like half implanted in the rock matrix, which kind of right. is holding it in place. So like if you think about fish fossils you've seen in museums, they're always in like a slab of rock or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's very rare that you have them, you know, unless you have much larger specimens. Like there are specimens from Kansas um, that have that are like these huge Cretaceous age fishes called Xyphactinus that you can, some people have removed them completely and like reconstructed them. And then you can have these specimens on display that are fully three dimensional and restored. So those are kind of nice to see, but when you have like a, what is that giant pocket room? Dunkelosteus. Like, oh, yeah. So that's in like that seems three dimensional. Yeah, so that's another one that's is that just one specimen that everyone uses, or is it? No, no, there's, all of them like there's, there's a few. There's multiple specimens. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> always dubious. There, there are. Yeah, there's you know some some pre- uh, companies that prepare these fossils. They make replicas of them. So you're, there could be like multiple replicas around in different museums. We'll buy them or like, but there are multiple specimens. Maybe not as complete as say like the one that you see all the time. Like you might just have like a Dunkelosteus upper jaw here and this, you know, rock. And then over here you've got like the, you know, the cheekbones or something. But Dunkelosteus is a very cool fish too. It just looks like his whole head is armor. It is. Even the eye. Like there's like little armor yeah, plates the around the eyes. I would totally believe that was on land. It looks so mean and <laughs> So you guys, do you guys know where like one of the most famous localities for that particular fish is from? So you're quizzing me on? Yeah, I'm going. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea. I'm uh, here. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, within, <laughs> within the United States, like where would you think you would find that? Yeah, where is Dunkelosteus? Where, where do you think that fossil oh, is found? From. Well, it's from the Devonian, right? Yeah. Yeah, in terms but, of the age. But the age. Cleveland. It is. Yeah. It's Cleveland. It's Cleveland, yep. Ohio. Cleveland used to be awesome. In fact, it's from See? the Cleveland, Cleveland Shale. Rocks. Yep. Yeah, Cleveland Rocks. <laughs> Cleveland Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> that that boo-worthy? No. <laughs> yeah, that was some good punnage. <laughs> I like that.
So for our fish of a week, I am looking at a fish that is in some sort of epoxy, so some sort of it's a resin. Resin. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I'm going to touch it, mm-hmm. and it look it looks like a real fish. It doesn't look like a fossil at all. It's brown and looks very fishy like. Like a goldfish. From it here. does <laughs> look like a goldfish, and it um, but it a definitely goldfish. you know it looks as close to a real fish as possible. But mm-hmm. I know this is a fossil. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about this guy? So, this specimen is from the Field Museum collections, and it's a fish. Uh, its scientific name is called Araripa lepidotes. So, is that a common name for the group? Have a no. Name? Uh, Something. No. They're, they're name g- one. <laughs> Make it up right now. <laughs> the snub-nosed gar. I don't know. Like, um, so, their closest living relatives. So, these fish are completely extinct, and everything in this order is is extinct. But the closest living Relatives of these are gar. So if you think of a modern-day gar, they've got these very thick kind of armory-type scales. Um, and these also have these thick scales called ganoin. They're covered with an enamel called ganoin. And so this specimen, or this species, Araripa lepidotes, is from Brazil in the Cretaceous. So I think the age is like 70 million years old, something like that. So it's a 70, mi- 70 million-year-old goldfish. <laughs> well, so yeah, no, <laughs> no, no. It's, it just had it's got a it's, it's like got an underslung it's got a subterminal mouth. Yeah, fish doesn't have teeth, uh, and it has this weird, like you said, a subterminal mouth. So it's below the head itself. So the other relatives have a to, a mouth that ends kind of right on the end of the snout, terminal and mouth. a terminal mouth, and these are below the mouth. So they they. They hypothesize that this species is probably like a sucker-type fish or that has, you know, it has a very weak jaw, too. The lower jaw doesn't have a lot of, it's very small, doesn't have a lot of places for muscle attachments. So it's probably like eating muck or, like like, algae. or algae off Yeah, the exactly. They, that's kind of what they hypothesize. Like one of the papers I read said that they have probably live similar to Cyprinus. So. <laughs> the goldfish. Exactly. The goldfish. Like goldfish. <laughs> I know. Like, the tail is totally wrong. And well, the tail is more like that of a, of a gar. Armor. Yeah, but sort of this one that's all pine cone so it's like, is this, yeah, so, is this side? Is okay, this, so... If you look at them, they're pretty serrated to the scales. Yeah, so the scales on the, on the edge, yeah, have lots of ridges, and some... This specimen, or this species, doesn't really have a lot of ornamentation on the surface of the skull, but they on the edges, they have that serrations. So what you're, uh, what we're looking at, uh, that the listeners can't see, but we have two halves of the same fish. So this is the same specimen... So what usually happens is you break open a rock and you have the two halves, but they're the same side. This is actually both sides of both sides of the same fish, and it's been acid prepared. So what they did, the preparators that did this, um, they embedded the, uh, the the side that was visible in this plastic resin, and then what they did is they flipped it over and they had all the rock on top still covering the other side, and then they acid prepared that down. So this is an example of a, of a type of fossilization that's perfect for acid prep. And so they did both sides. So uh, you, can te- you can tell which side was uh, when the fish died and laid flat in the ground or in the, the, the mud or whatever, you can tell which side was submerged and which side was exposed up. Like you can see the side that's all disarticulated that, that Matt's holding mm-hmm. uh, was the side that was exposed to the water and, and organisms eaten at it. And so its, its head got all messed up and disarticulated, but this was the side that was buried in the sediment. So it's preserved in its original articulated uh, position. When he died. When he died. Yeah, the other one looks like my daughter was eating on it. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but these are cool. Spe- I mean, this is the only fish with this kind of like weird mouth in this family. So it's a very unique fish in that regard. So if you picture like a, a gar like today, but short and no snout, no long snout. So a little snub nose probably and like a little sucker. That's what you've got more or less. Like a goldfish. Like a goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really old goldfish. Well, and another thing they compare to is that Cyprinus eats a lot of things like ostracods and some plant matter and stuff. And the, in this same deposit uh, in the Santana, uh, there are a lot of ostracods in these same beds that you find. So they think that it probably had a diet very similar too. So. All right, so, you know... We've, we've talked about getting all this stuff and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a lot harder to get this stuff than you realize. And then, you know, how do you prep it? You know, whether you actually have to go with horrible dentist tools and prep that or, you know, put them in jars of formalin well, we or, we or make, we ethanol. We skeletons too. So we, oh, know, that's yeah, true. that's right. That's we true. feed ours to beetles. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say. Can, well, no, we got a million different ways. We can, we, one way is to, you kill the fish, you fillet it, and then you give, you sort of give it to beetles for a while, but then you have to painstakingly remove all the flesh off of it after the beetles didn't want to touch. Do you ever eat your fish you collect? That's I, a really I try to eat almost every have, single yeah. species that I collect. I mean, are you allowed to do that, though? Of course. Does what do you mean allowed? I don't know. It's, I, don't, I don't know what the rules are. It like, depends on what your permits say, but, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, you, I mean obviously, because when, when you prepare it, right, so, you know, you need to take all the muscles out and you need to take the organs out and you, you, save, you save bits of it, but you're not saving all the fillet. Right. It depends on how we keep the fish because sometimes we just want the whole fish and like we'll fix it in formalin or we'll take a piece of tissue for DNA work later. But then sometimes if we just if we're gonna make a skeleton of it or something, it's no problem just to eat it. You yeah. Know, then that yeah. then that's not. So an it issue. depends on your ultimate purpose of. Yeah, it depends right. on the purpose of the specimen. Right. As an ichthyologist, you know just how parasite ridden they are. Um, yeah. And so you know once we got a ocean sunfish mola mola that we caught on a boat. So these are these giant like there's like tires floating in the water. <laughs> <laughs> with like these weird stupid tails or whatever they are and they are they just sit on the surface and like they, the whole birds just come and land on them eat the parasites on them they're so parasite ridden oh my god and so you, we got one and they're related to things like fugu and other things we eat so we were like wondering if these would be delicious but at the same time we were like this is the grossest thing in the world <laughs> and so it's like a cesspool it's like a sewer of, of disease so we got one. We decided to cut a fillet off, but we cut one off about the size of a like a like a paper plate because we were on a boat, so we had paper plates. And then we covered the whole thing with just like thousands of gallons of lemon juice and just watched the parasites kind of come out. Lemon juice is really effective at driving parasites out of flesh. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, because it, it's an acid. So well, it's yeah, an acid, so it it, sense, they don't like but... it. So you put that on there. Let that go for a while, and then you just microwave the crazy out of it. It's like <laughs> parasite ridden. You just like figure that that's going to be the best way to possibly do it. It does not necessarily, you know, it's microwave fish fillet is probably not. Nah, you it know, sounds wretched. <laughs> you know, lemon like lemon soaked lemon, microwave, microwave fish mola, mola. fillet. <laughs> what was amazing is so we took this thing that was the size of like a dinner plate and we put it in the microwave, and the thing shrunk down to something about the size of. The time I came, it was about the size of a five and a quarter inch floppy drive disc. But um, what else is about that? VCR tape. It's about the size of a CD. <laughs> so it, it probably shrunk in size by like sixty percent. Wow! Uh, and it was remarkably good. Oh, considering how we had prepared it. Huh. In general, though, can we get like I was under the impression, and I could be wrong, that like you never want to eat freshwater fish raw because because our bodies are composed so much of water, and we have 
a non-saline environment, like not super saline, that, that those actual parasites can grow in you. So you don't want to eat raw freshwater fish. Oh, but my favorite raw fish is a freshwater fish. Which it's one? called booty. It's in, from Japan, and, and you, you eat it in the winter because it's supposed to be the most delicious when the water's very cold, and you mm. get it very fresh, and it tastes like heaven. Fresh booty? Fresh booty. I know. And you also get to say, <laughs> I want some booty. Yeah, Beth uh, wants, to, wants to go to Japan for a booty call. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely it's absolutely delicious. I mean, but that doesn't mean we, we should be eating it, though. I mean, well, I don't know. And deliciousness and having parasites are two totally different questions. Well, there's also ciguatera poisoning and scombroid poisoning. There's a million different kinds of poisons you can get because of a or mercury poisoning of uh, fish eat smaller things and but you're not by accumulation but in terms of your question of the marine thing i don't think you're likely to get parasites from marine stuff like that yeah, stay but in just you. look at it i mean no, i mean you don't want to yeah you don't want to you don't want to oh, eat okay. it yeah, it's not going to live in me so i'll just eat it no, I'm not mm. trying to eat a parasite. no you don't want to you don't want to eat it but like if you go to a sushi restaurant like pro- probably the majority of the raw fish they would serve you is marine fish like they almost they never serve you Raw freshwater fishes, like the eels cooked, right? Yeah, the yeah eels they always cook the eel, and salmon, that. and things like that are smoked. Yeah, they, 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 do, raw, they do in Japan. They eat raw. Raw, um, raw freshwater fish. Raw freshwater fish. Oh, so this might be a little off topic, but when we were um, in Japan, we were in a lake and we went fishing and we went with a with a school group. So they you had lived there for a while, right? Yes, yes, I lived there for a while, and so they were catching. I, I, I'm, I don't remember the name of the fish, but they were just very kind of small, maybe about one of my saying about like six inch little little lake fish, yeah. just brown generic six fish, inch. and they would put them and they would catch them right away, and they would have a bucket and the bucket was full of batter and they just flop them into the batter like right away so they catch them and they flock them into the batter and then uh the moms there would have like a big walk and they had a little portable stove and they had oil and stuff and so they flock them in the batter and after you get a whole bunch of them and then they just fry them up right away and then you would just eat the whole fish hmm. um and, <laughs> and 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 i was like taking videos of this and actually i should find this and we can we can put it up on a website um one of the fish after it was transferred from the batter to the walk wasn't quite dead yet and oh, it no. swam for probably about two seconds in the oil. <laughs> and I was just <laughs> looking at it and they go, very fresh. And I went, yes. It's <laughs> not a good way to die. <laughs> um, when I was fishing in Brazil, one time we stopped a local person's house. He had a farm and he was letting us fish kind of off at the back of his property. And we caught a bunch of catfishes and piranhas and things. And, you know, we ate the piranhas, made soup out of it. But like, you know, he really wanted to cook these catfish and he brought out all these catfish fillets, but they were just like raw, just like cut right off the catfish, you know. And he really wanted us to eat them. But I, I felt really bad like because I was just like, no, I'm not eating that. Because I was like, Lord knows, like, what kind of parasites in that catfish? <laughs> it's going to come and yeah, get Yeah, I me. did not want that catfish. No, I don't. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't eat anything I kill myself raw. No. Oh, no, I wouldn't. That's why. Yeah. It's not worth the risk. No. Yeah. So what, what, What's wrong with cooking? So I have two questions. So what's your favorite fish to eat? And then what do you think your fish used to taste like? You ever oh. think about that? Like, I uh, think this was a delicious fish. I know fish. what they taste like now. They taste like dirt. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I bet they taste like sturgeon. What does a gar or taste gar, like? Can you yeah. eat gar? Yeah, I eat alligator gar. Oh. Because so like, the because well, the dead eating guard. No, they, they make it in Louisiana. Yeah, the alligator guard down there is good. Like little, it's not bad. They, 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 they like bites yeah. like at a restaurant. No, you yeah you can buy it. There's markets. You go to like the Cajun them. towns and stuff. You can buy oh, like Cajun gar markets, bites. Yeah. Gar. <laughs> no, they're alligator gar. Well, you don't want to eat the embryos, right? Because I think they're they're toxic. 
Not all gar, though. Is it just alligator gar? I don't know which ones they are that are toxic, but I, I thought long nose gar were toxic, too. But no, no, mm-hmm. I just think it's a subset. It's not all of them, I don't think. Yeah, maybe it's okay. not all of them. But sturgeon? I don't eat that either. Caviar's so gross. <laughs> Caviar is my least favorite fish. Well, okay. Kind of fish. Anything. Well, what's yeah. your favorite fish, Ethan? Yeah. My favorite. Um, I don't. I, I, it's remarkable how few I really, really, really like. I mean, like, I I tend to not like open water, fast swimming fish. So fish that rely on oils to get them to swim around, like tuna or you don't like tuna swordfish. Mm-hmm. No, swordfish is pretty bland, but I think tuna is pretty good. Raw tuna. Too oily. Because what happens is when you move around a lot, you tend to lose your swim bladder, and so you have to, to make yourself buoyant in the water. You fill yourself with oil. And the second you do that is the second you, you smell and taste fishy, and I don't actually think I like that. Huh. Uh, so I tend to like things that live on the bottom. I, tend, I think my favorite fish of all time, uh, a guy named Bob Lee, who used to work for the Cal Fishing Game Department, took me. Petrali Sol was what the common name. He took hmm. me to this little hole-in-the-wall place in Monterey. Best fish I ever had was a little Petrali Sol, like sort of sandwichy thing. Hmm. Uh, it's delicious. But in general, I like monkfish, goosefish. I'm all, you know, I always like salmon. I hate all freshwater fish. Trout. <laughs> catfish is okay. It's like a bit is good. Catfish is fine. I don't know why I'm okay with catfish because I hate to. I yeah, it's mostly hate trout. Most people hate carp? catfish. Do you like carp? Like, oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever had I don't had like catfish. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had carp. It's like so inconceivable to oh, eat Oh, carp. Yeah. I don't like anything that's swimming around in mud. I really like salmon, but boy, do I not like salmon eggs. It's so disgusting. Yeah. They, like, pop in your mouth yeah, like they're oil. they're gross. It so. is. And it's like, this has been at the bottom of the ocean for 10 years, and now it's in my mouth. So. <laughs> so nasty. That's like you go get a rockfish off of California, Pacific sea bass, and the thing is, you know, 70 years old, you're eating it. It's been sitting in the ocean. Like, plastic hadn't even been invented by the time it was, when it was born, and oh. now you're eating it. Now I'm eating it. And it got eight of them on one hook. <laughs> I've killed this It's been alive longer than my parents And I'm eating it I'm eating And I'm like, oh, I'm Aww. full Let me just throw the rest away <laughs> Nasty But that's one of the things about saltwater fish A lot of ones we eat are, you know, scores of years old And, you know, hmm. that's why we have so many sort of conservation issues with them So what is your favorite fish? Salmon? To eat? Yeah no, no, actually, no. It's not my favorite. My favorite is actually the freshwater eel. Like I love freshwater eel. Huh. Like at a Japanese restaurant, like unagi. Ugh. That oh, that's my favorite. I've never tried it because it sounds so gross. No, that's, I that's I my favorite. I don't like eel. What about jelly eel? They do in Britain, Ireland. I don't think I've ever had that. It sounds gross. <laughs> Why don't we mix it with lye and bury it for a few years? Like I've only been to London once, but I don't even remember seeing jelly deal anywhere. Yeah. How about you? What's your favorite fish? Me? Uh, well, probably the booty. I we do. can't it's figure good. out what it is. That okay. Help us. Um, Let's go to the next one. So I'm probably really boring um, with other fish that I like. I really like um, tuna. I think tuna is delicious. I, like um, I love the fatty tuna too, man. That's awesome when you sear it just on the outside yeah. and it's raw on the inside that's tasty fish that is good yeah. i can't go wrong with that either i like salmon a lot i oh. i'm sorry it's true who doesn't like salmon i know well i like um i don't know i'm pretty basic too kind of boring i like flounder and i like i like uh cod when it's cooked like the right way oh. i love cod yeah. Do you like fish and chips and things like that? Yeah, I do, but I don't eat it very often. But I do like it. <laughs> I've never had fish and chips. Really? What? In your whole life? Yeah. 
What? 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 How old are you? Do you know I've actually eaten a fish while it's been alive? This (gasps) happened in Japan once as well. And uh, it was at a very, very fancy, super fancy um, dinner party. And it had a beautiful spread. It was a buffet and everything looked gorgeous. And oftentimes in Japan with the raw fish, they'll actually have the fish and they'll just cut it up. You know, so you can see, so you can see what fish you're eating, which, which mm-hmm. is totally fine. And you go up with your chopsticks and you take what you want. And I took a piece of this fish and I look at its head and its gills are still <gasps> moving. Oh, you know, wow. it's just it's totally creeped me out. But like lots of things are alive there when you eat them. It's like you get these little things and they're like, oh, this is sea cucumber and it's still alive. And you're just like, I don't want to eat a sea cucumber anyway, but well, I just really don't want to eat <laughs> If you bite into the middle and it, you know, and shrimps and things, there's a whole bunch of things they make that are totally alive when you eat them, and you're just like, you do when you're in a formal situation, you are eating that. Yes, this is this is very true. I mean, it was really good. And it, I don't want to. Like, it's not a judgment. It's just not my like, not my cup of tea. Well, and culturally, that that freaks us out a little bit. I will say we gravitated towards food a lot, but I that's probably one of my most favorite things about field work. Especially in another country is all the different food. Oh, so. yeah. That is true. How about in Utah? How's the food in Utah? You know, we're out in the field in the middle of nowhere, so we got to pack all our food in. And I eat a lot of, like, dinty moor stew and gross things like that. <laughs> so. well, when, when, when we're in Madagascar, it's a lot of rice. Corn rice. And, like, if you need protein, it's laughing cow cheese and, and corned beef in a can. Yeah, when I was in Panama, depending on the area, it was either just, like, a lot of rice and chicken. But then there were some other areas where the, you know... The food was just amazing, like on the Caribbean mm-hmm. seaside or something like that. Or like when you I was in Vietnam. Hard. No, in Vietnam, I mean, you need to work. Awesome food. Work. There's not even where you don't see a person for three weeks and everything you have to carry it on your back. Yep. That's real field work. Oh, yeah, that's real field oh, work. Yeah. No, 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 I'm not saying that. That's like, you, you don't long for the food on one of those kind of expeditions. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. But maybe <laughs> no. the mistake was putting yourself in that position. <laughs> problem with freshwater fish if you're going after ocean fishes there's always something delicious nearby well a lot of the freshwater fish i've collected like like say in panama or here in north like in the united states it's not you know there's always somewhere to go to eat i mean the worst was in panama like in the darien area it was harder to go out and get food so the you know we had rice pretty much every day for like five or six days in a row and that was basically it so you got a little tired of that but you know you can always get somewhere yeah, not Madagascar. There's no roads. Yeah, I can believe that. And the weird thing is, there's no fruit. It's the only place in the tropics I've ever been where there's not food everywhere naturally. Were you there the wrong time of year? No, no, because and it was like the and it, the other problem we had is lychee season, and they do not want you to take it lychees because that's one of their big exports. It's lychees are delicious. They're, they are phenomenal there. Whereas here, I get them and I'm just like, oh, I can't eat this. And, oh, mm-hmm. oh. But there, I was like, holy cow! And they were like, <laughs> comparatively, because like once you start it, if you start from there. And work your way back. It's like they don't. They just taste rubbery and gummy here. Yeah. Um, but that's one. Of, I agree. Field work is fun in the sense that you try new things. Yeah. Like they. One of the craziest mm-hmm. things was to, like not raw exactly, but but or not fully developed or whatever papaya when it's younger. If they if you cut it when it's much 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 younger, it actually tastes like onions, and they use it like onions. And you're just like, oh. how is the papaya the same? How is this the same thing? Wow. But if you did, just depending on what the season is, it's like it's got a good flavor. And you can start imagining things that are kind of like that, like green tomatoes versus red tomatoes and things huh. like that. Yeah, so that makes sense. So, but it was delicious. I mean, that was one of the things that the problem is where am I going to buy a papaya? I live in Chicago. <clears throat> oh, papayas here are disgusting, but papayas are delicious. The best papayas are in Thailand, Southeast Asia. They're, they're just, they taste like heaven. Yeah, and here they taste like moldy disgustingness. See, it's like the lychees. Mm-hmm. I think papayas taste fine here. 
Yeah. Ah, ugh, they're awful. So what's your least favorite thing about field work? I know what mine is. Paperwork. Paperwork. Getting paperwork permits. And disease, paper, get, doing collecting legally is uh, complicated. Yeah. It takes a long time to get permits, and and you always have to like don't not. And then the other thing is disease, which is a reason to stick. I was to gonna say things. my yeah. least favorite thing about field work are mosquitoes. Disease. Yeah, the disease is no good. Mm-hmm. Like how about. What about you? Disease? Or? Disease is probably, I guess that is when you said that, now I think about it, like that's probably the part I get the most paranoid about. Because once you have the permits and you're secured with that, it's not such a big deal. It's just, it's just a hard to do it's deal with nerve initially. It's still to bring them back in the U.S., every yeah. aspect of it. Like even if you, everything's legal, you're just always nervous though. Yeah, because you'll get stopped and asked questions by Fish and Wildlife or whoever. And it's, just, you know, you have to show you're your documents. Job, but yeah, but yeah, it's. You're just always nervous. Yeah, it's. Exactly. I don't like crossing borders, period. Like, and you've spent weeks collecting all these things and it's like you're at the last stretch. You want to get it home mm-hmm. and like get it back to your collection or wherever. It's just, Safety in general, I guess, is my biggest concern though. It's like, mm-hmm. are you going to get robbed? Are you going to like be in a little tiny boat that gets tipped over and be dumped in the middle of the ocean and yeah. then you're like do I try and save the fish that I've been collecting for three weeks if we go do I grab that or do I just swim to shore because uh, people die a lot not infrequently in field work mm-hmm. yeah when I was in Panama or like Vietnam the probably the thing that felt the least safe was mainly just the transportation like the driving like in Vietnam we had to ride motorcycles everywhere the little motorbikes and you know it's just kind of a kind of an everything goes type situation where there's no specific way everybody's driving. It's just totally kind of like random chaos in motion, but it works. Yeah. You, know. you don't pay attention to it's it. It's like yeah. in the US. Don't think it's like being at UC Davis except for everyone. On motorcycles. Like 40 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, it was fine, and it, but it was fun. But at first, it you know, it's a little jarring and then it gets better. But like, or like, you know, Central American stuff with the driving can be a little hazardous. It feels mm-hmm. like sometimes. I mean, that's. No, everywhere driving the, the transportation is probably the has like probably the most hazardous part of it. But then the disease, you worry about that a little bit too. And there's not a lot you can do about it. At some point, you just kind of have to let it go. What What about what's most least, worrisome, least favorite, least favorite thing about my field work? The, I guess the sanitation issues because. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like a giant plane of rock isn't perfect for sanitation. <laughs> well, so there's <laughs> rules. A shovel. There's rules. Okay. Okay. Let me put it this way. Like, so first of all, I'm out in the middle of the desert and there's no running water. There's no, so we have to tote all our water in. So we can't bathe for however long we're out there. So unless you want to drive like an hour and a half to the nearest town, I'm not thinking like city, like lowest town, you know, hopefully find a shower there. Whatever. So you're like, first of all, you're filthy with dust and dirt and everything and you can't shower and you're sweaty and your hair just like stands straight up you know it doesn't you know then uh there are laws like so for if you're on federal or blm land you can't dig a hole you have to like take all your excrement or whatever oh, you with have to you. pack it out you have to pack it out oh. you can't you can't dig a hole yeah. you can't do any of that you can't leave it there <laughs> so, so this is like so. Okay, so when you I you no, guys so, look at babies, I want to get bit by mosquitoes. I'm gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> my first trip, someone died on our trip. All right, well, but still, this is gross. So, but this, is, so there's. <laughs> I like, would just leave my dump on the ground. Yeah, I, 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 you're crazy. So yeah, but ain't fun uh, in the middle of nowhere anyway. Yeah, but if you get caught, you lose your just permits, and you know there's all sorts of that. So who's gonna catch you? Who's gonna catch you and be like, oh, you didn't? That's obviously coyote dump. Yeah. Well, okay, so we have a little loophole around this. When I go out and do field work in Utah, there's this little patch of state land that we camp on. And we and when in the state land, you can actually dig a hole. So we actually dig like a four-foot, five-foot hole. And then we have this little box with a toilet seat on top. And we just put that there. And it's like away from the camp. 
So it's like down this hill and away so like no one can see you and like there's a little thing to take with you so people know when someone's down there or not. So anywho, like on state land you can you can dig a hole and leave it. And I bet that, that that area like is a prime real estate. Now. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Dave, you know, is the we use the same hole on every trip? No, it's the same area. We have a designated area. <laughs> For, for, for you this dig. Site. For I'm this not site. digging first. You dig. It's, it's what if somebody falls in the hole? You can't, well, it's not like a huge hole, and then there's Major a toilet over it. The toilet it's like, it's oh, like the hole like the size. It's, the, it's, it's like a oh. hole the size of like a bucket or something, like wide. So and you've got a box yeah. toilet over it, so you're not going to fall in it. And you've got the most beautiful view in the world while you're sitting, like, doing your thing. Yes. <laughs> if there's no water, you do not have the most beautiful view in the world, period. <laughs> so... That's that's my least favorite part. That's gross. Not being able to bathe, not having like good fine. sanitation. Running water. Yeah. yeah. Water is a problem. Water is my my beef. Yeah, you always need the clean water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scuba diving's scary. I can't scuba dive. Oh. Like currents, the ocean's scary. Like currents and things like that. Like I've been in some scary situations and it can be very dangerous. If you want to agree, disagree, or want to ask what the fish, tweet us your questions at fm underscore what the fish. And once again, so long and thanks for all the fish. Mm-hmm.